Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning, and I'm still uh, drinking out of my Hell's Coming With Me mug this week again. <laughs> Which, if you're just tuning in for the first time, you'll wonder what he's talking about, but we will explain. And, <laughs> and I still, like... I, I, every time you bring that up, I get like a little more and more both guilty and also like, no, dude, like I don't understand why you think he should have won. <laughs> anyway, so uh, yes, for those who are uh, wondering why we're not really talking about movies, this is this is history and film. But uh, we spent uh, about four years going through world history, one movie at a time, chronologically. But now we are in the middle of a very heated tournament. Right, so the uh, the tournament here is to determine who is the most interesting person in history, and the only really criteria that we're using to put people in our in our tournament is they had to be at least mentioned in an episode of our podcast from the previous four seasons. Um, and you know, th- this was something that I've been thinking about for the last couple weeks. The first couple times that we talked about this, we talked about, oh yeah, you know, we're going to name it the Leonardo da Vinci tournament or name the award the leonardo da vinci award and i even made a couple just like oh right because he's like the obvious correct answer for who's the most important or who's the most interesting person right. in history um after after going through a few of these i don't think that that's true I, anymore i think <laughs> i kind of agree i was kind of just letting it slide because it seemed like it should be the answer but i'm thinking wait right. it, wasn't he just kind of an artist like these other people are really fascinating <laughs> yeah i mean he he did a lot of really interesting stuff but like talking about like you know, Isabella of France and like Cleopatra, like these, there are some real interesting people in our, we did a really good job setting this up, Rich, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, although, and also though, curious, like, oh, should we do like a bonus episode on Leonardo da Vinci and maybe we'll convince ourselves that, oh yeah, okay, here's all this other stuff that we really hadn't got to, but. Yeah, maybe. It, I don't know. It's it's uh. There's been a lot of interesting people, a lot of interesting people, and yeah, definitely. It, it's uh, by narrowing it down to just those we've had on the podcast before, it basically made it easier, not harder, to to figure out which direction to right. take this. So, but on the flip side of that coin, though, you know, just because we're quote limiting ourselves by oh, we, we're only talking about people that we you know did episodes on. Like a lot of the movies that are made about historical figures are made about the most interesting people, so it, it limited us, but like also not right. Really. Right, there's not a lot of movies about the 13th century stable sweeper who died of pleurisy at the age of 25. <laughs> <laughs> Yet, at time of recording, <laughs> I don't even know what pleurisy is, but I I I, I remember from the podcast that that's what like. Uh, Emperor uh, Joseph or whatever in uh, Amadeus, his daughter died of pleurisy. So mm-hmm. I was just kind of remembering that. I actually forget what it is. But it sounded good for a 13th century stable worker. Yeah. So yes, we are in the middle of the second round. So we started with 32. First round was kind of just uh, knee-jerk. Who do we think should advance after just a few minutes of, of debate? And then in the Sweet 16 here, not to infringe on the copyright of the NCAA, we... Uh, are going on full full biography. So this is the third matchup of the Sweet 16, and today pits uh, number one seed in the 
enlightened industrialist region, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte against Ivan the Terrible, the five seed. And we go, we're doing lower seed first, yes. right? Okay. So we will start off with the underdog, the lower seed. And again, all seeding was just kind of done by notoriety and who we thought was maybe more or less famous. So uh, that's how the, the seeding goes. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. actually, that's, I was going to say, that's, that's a, an important aspect to this tournament as well, is that the voting and, you know, determining who moves on is done by how interesting they are, but how they were seeded was by notoriety. So how likely this, per- like, if you walk up to a random person on the street and say, you know, have you ever heard of, insert name right. here, have they heard right. of them? Um, and so... There's a lot of uh, interesting matchups because of the way that we... Right, a lot, a lot of times it's the less people who do end up being more interesting when you start doing the deep dive, and yeah. So yes, uh, we'll start off here. I'll give the rundown of Ivan the Terrible, and then we'll kick it to Logan for the Napoleon side of things, and then we'll decide who, who advances. So uh, first off, I do feel like you got to start with the name, and it's, it is kind of interesting. Ivan the Terrible, It's it's I mean, it's... It's something you hear of even in grade school, even if you don't know who he is or what that means. I, I remember what, looking at the you know, the cartoon strip, Hagar the Horrible, which is always, he was more of a Viking, but it's kind of an obvious ripoff off of all these leaders. They get these little, what do they call them? Like, an, is it an appellate? Like, the little name after their name. So, like, so many of the greats. Oh, is there a word for that? I think. I assume they're, I guess there would be. To, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. You're the writer. You tell me. <laughs> okay, let's, let's see if I was right on appellate real quick first. Which would actually make sense from the French because Appel is like what you call yourself. So Appellate would be like a little name. So I wonder if there is something to that. Oh. Okay. Well, I don't know how to spell though. So I found Appellate, like Appellate Court. <laughs> right. Is it Epithet? No, that's like, I thought I thought that's like on your uh, tombstone or whatever. Let's see. It is could it be word? though. Yeah. So this, uh, yeah, Epithet, it's Greek means attributed or added. It's a word, phrase, accompanying or occurring in place of a name and having entered common usage. Um, it says it can also be a descriptive title. For example, Alfred the Great, Suleiman the Magnificent. Okay, but it also says, like, drop, dropping the N-word to a black person is also an epithet. <laughs> that's like a racial epithet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, but it's, it's the same thing, because it's a word or phrase that occurs in place of a name. Okay, there you go. Epithet. Okay, so I oh I so I was I was phonetically close. I was just saying appellate, and it was epithet. Okay, right. Okay, I don't see how we do that. So we do we go back and make me right? <laughs> <laughs> or here you go. You get to chime in and say, okay, actually it's epithet. Oh, there's actually a this is classic Logan and Rich going off in the weeds. But so there's a it's talking about the difference between an epithet and a sobriquet. Okay. Which I've heard of sobriquet before. I, I've heard of epithet before, too. I just didn't know that that's what it meant. But then it says that there is a Latin term called epitheton necessarium, which is the epithet is used like to distinguish a particular person. So, for instance... The younger. You can have anyone named Alexander, but Alexander the Great is an epitheton necessarium because that denotes a specific oh, person, or Richard the yeah, Lionheart, yeah. or Charles the Fat. Because without yeah. without which you don't know it. Okay. Versus exactly, Ashaka, right. your Ramesses, you might not need it because you would still know who you're referring to. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So all that is to <laughs> well, but so but Ivan the, Ivan the Terrible though is all, always stands out though because he is like. I mean, that's the only one that kind of is like a household name, and it's the terrible. Now, 
what's interesting is how it's both a horrible translation yet also super accurate at the same time so yeah, yeah when the exactly. russians or when it's like grozny or grozny or whatever so when they're calling him ivan grozny the russian really means more of like the menacing or the intimidating or you know the the fear right. inducing like terrible as in one who invokes terror but yeah he also was pretty terrible in the English. I was going to say, yeah, he also was, yeah. But it's a almost dick. a coincidence. <laughs> uh-huh. So, yeah. yeah um, which is, <laughs> side note, because we love him. It's kind of like how, not exactly, but it made me think of how Nimrod became an insult because no one realized that Bugs Bunny was being ironic. Are you familiar with that? No. When Bugs Bunny was calling Elmer Fudd Nimrod... It was a joke because Nimrod is a great ancient warrior. And so the joke was that Elmer Fudd was like, he'd be like, say, it's like calling a dumb person Einstein. Obviously, Einstein's really smart. Oh, okay. You call the dumb person Einstein. I guess I, I knew the connect, or I knew of, I knew of the historical usage of the word Nimrod. I didn't know that Bugs Bunny oh. used it on Elmer Fudd. That's probably a generational thing. And the reason why it's used as an insult is because of Bugs Bunny and no one realizing Bugs Bunny was oh. being ironic. Okay, that's funny. It basically got into the lexicon as an insult because no one understood the what the reference going back to Bugs Bunny, which makes sense too if you're watching Bugs Bunny when you're a kid, you learn that first and then it just becomes the insult and you can right. almost see people, you know, in the future not realizing that Einstein was ever actually the smart person and you just think that Einstein is actually <laughs> what you call dumb people. Right. Anyway, so Ivan was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> all right and uh so we're on napoleon we <laughs> um okay so i do want to set set the stage for what we were dealing with in russia here at the time so uh ivan uh was not terrible at birth although <laughs> it was kind of maybe prophesized that he would be evil if you get into all all of those kinds of things that his uh his dad oh i forget exactly but his dad was like uh basically Something to do with the circumstances of, like, his dad's marriage to his mother or something was not on the up and up. And so someone, like, they were, like, cursed him or said he was going to be cursed. And that his, uh, basically from this union will be born an evil child kind of thing. And then even on the night that Ivan, you know, the soon-to-be-terrible was born, it's like a thunderstorm and everything. So, like, the omens are kind of, like, off the charts of this kid maybe not being so great. But his father was the Grand Prince of Moscow. But at the time, Moscow was basically the whole region around the city of Moscow. So essentially what is now northwestern Russia. So it was a decently sized area. And that's kind of, that's around that time, That that's uh, pretty common in, in other places too. So like you would have, like in Italy, you know, you had like... Oh, there you go. Yes, there you go. Like Venice. But that wasn't like just the city, it was also the right. area around, or, or uh, Genoa, or... yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah, it's, the whole region. Yeah, that's something it's, that it 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 doesn't become the way that we understand it today until later on. Right. Right. And which does kind of tie into some of those things we talked about with Richelieu and Napoleon, kind of leading to some of those those, those things. Yeah. Now again, it, it was bigger than those, just because you are in Russia, so it's nowhere near the size of what we think of Russia today. But it was right. You know, so it's way smaller than that. But you know, for being Russia, it was still decent size compared to maybe some of the things around it. But it was also just far less important. So the Grand Prince of Moscow was in charge of Muscovy or whatever you would call that, this kind of proto-Russia 
that has uh, that still had its own history going back centuries. Which, again, side note, to something we'll talk about in the future with Vikings. So in season, this won't spoil anything for you. It's just basically a, a, the existence of a character. But in season six of Vikings, there is a we see a young Russian prince, Igor, Igor, or whatever, and that is mm-hmm. a direct ancestor of Ivan the Terrible. Oh, okay. And so, so his father's from this Ryan of they called like the Rurikid King. So, like the first one was uh, Rurikid, I guess, and I think his son was maybe this Ivan and or sorry, this Igor from the show Vikings. Anyway, then centuries later, we are here and they're in charge of Russia, and they're also kind of surrounded in a weird way. So they're this you know Russian Orthodox country surrounded by a lot of Muslim countries or Catholic countries. So they are kind of on an island here. What? Uh... What I don't know if you said already, but what year is this? Oh, sorry. So yes, so Ivan is born on August twenty fifth, fifteen thirty. Okay, and so and that's so I'm trying to yeah, so that's kind of the world he was born into, where his father is in charge of you know the Muscovy region or whatever you would call that, the Grand Prince of Moscow. So he's going to very swiftly inherit that title. Also, a quick note on his dad: uh, some some historians will joke that his dad uh, Vasily uh, should be called Vasily the Adequate. Because he's the son of <laughs> Ivan the Great and the father of Ivan the nice. Terrible. So he was just okay. So he's vastly the adequate. <laughs> yeah, nice. But just uh, just three years after Ivan is born, his father dies. And probably one of the few deaths that don't seem to be shady in any way. He just had like an injury that kind of like, you know, abscessed, gangrene, whatever. Just kind of just died from an injury that got out of control. and. He then leaves, uh, so Ivan, at three years old, is technically now the Grand Prince of Moscow, but of course you now have to have a regency because he's, he's way too young. So his mother, who has kind of like some uh, Turkish-Mongol roots a little bit, not actually a descendant from Genghis Khan, but from like one of the other kind of Khans that you know were back in the day. A lot of those uh, territories that do surround Moscow are these kind of broken old khanates you so you kind of had you know from genghis khan to the full height of you know the golden horde and the mongol empire and then as it started to fracture you still have all these called khanates basically just these uh smaller independent states that are kind of the remnants of the mongol empire right. and so her family are, it kind of dates back to, to one of those and we're gonna be butting heads with some of those here uh going forward here too but she's also then holding off a lot of challenges from all these boyar families so that's kind of the big fight within I'm just going to start calling it Russia within Russia here. What is called tiny Russia um, <laughs> is that these noble families are always vying for power. And of course, now that you have, you know, a almost a foreigner kind of coming in as now the regent at, with the grand prince dead, these boyars want control and are always kind of, you know, fighting both each other and against Ivan's mother for control. She ends up, you know, imprisoning some of them and probably executing some of them and, and then she, when Ivan is eight years old, dies and is most likely poisoned by the boyars who then kind of take over. And Ivan also has a younger brother. Um, so they're basically these now two orphans who are technically, you know, the prince and the prince's little brother that will one day be in charge. But in the meantime, it's all just the boyars calling all the shots. And Ivan and his brother are mostly neglected. Now... What gets tricky here is it does seem, you look at a lot, a lot of the research on Ivan the Terrible, the, the sources, you'll read some stuff and there'll be all these like anecdotes and some people are spitting out all these anecdotes like, yep, these are cold stone facts. This is what happened. And other sites are more like, well, 
these are the stories, but we don't know to what extent we can actually say these actually happened or to what extent they were just kind of put out by his enemies going forward. Or So a lot of these stories, I honestly don't know whether to believe them or not. And I think it kind of comes down to how you want to view him or that the truth is probably always in the middle. So on the one hand, we're going to, you know, we could grow to paint Ivan as this, you know, foundational figure for the strength of Russia and it becoming a major player in the world. And on the other hand, you have this absolute psychopath, you know, one of the most evil people in history. And I would say the truth is probably somewhere in the middle or, hey, why not both? He was a violent sociopathic (laughs) patriot who made Russia so powerful. So maybe it's a little bit of both. But the reason I say all that is that some of the stories of his childhood are that like, Oh, you know, basically him and his brother were in effect thrown in a dungeon and then the the boyars would just kind of parade them out when they had visitors to be like, yep, here's the here's the grand prince and his little brother. And then don't they look so nice? They're going to be such good leaders. Then you throw them like back in their cage and don't even like feed them or give them clothes when the boyars are actually in charge and that they're getting like people alive in front of Ivan and all these kinds of things that he's witnessing and being traumatized. Jesus. And again. Some people are, it, it's possible. Like, I, I'm just, a lot of the stuff I'm going to say, it's possible. And then that kind of leads into Ivan yeah. possibly torturing animals and throwing cats out of windows and stuff when he's a kid, as he's kind of just emulating this kind of vicious behavior. He's I basically mean, set up to be a serial that, killer. I was going to say, based on what we know about, like, early development for serial killers, that sounds pretty standard as far as, like, you know, ruthless sociopathic behavior goes. So probably not outside the realm of possibility for sure right right so I, yeah i guess i'll probably sum some of these kinds of things up and i'll just kind of continue to talk about them but i'll say that they are all believable they they fit within the world right. at the time they're hard to corroborate obviously because this is you know almost 500 years ago but right. uh, there's also a good chance they happen but we're not right. talking about something like trunk sisters ascending into the clouds right these are believable things or right like right that. this is right okay and some of the things we will get to that are very horrific are corroborated by you know historical mm-hmm. evidence and kinds of things so this is the only bio we're doing in the uh, sweet 16 here that's almost a horror story <laughs> yeah well because vlad the impaler's out so we gotta have <laughs> yeah true true i've I, we gotta have, i don't uh, take his place i've been the terrible come in and, and bring the nasty yes yes but for now he's just now he's just a troubled little kid who's starting to kind of see some of these things going on and that supposedly he ordered his first execution at 13 i even found a few sites that kind of talked about when he was like you know 14 and 15 here right before he ends up being crowned czar which we'll get to that he and his posse were basically just a gang of thugs going around moscow and just raping and pillaging and like just being absolute shits because they knew they could get away with it because he's the crown prince so there's right there's some stories that kind of talk about those kinds of things kind of like a uh like a joffrey from game of thrones type deal kinda yeah that's a that's actually a decent comparison that's probably a good call although the exception being probably far more competent right jo- yeah. joffrey was kind of all talk i think ivan could walk the right. walk and more petulant yeah 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 so yes, at 16 years old, January 1547, Ivan is now come of age uh, and names himself Tsar of all Russia. Now, that's different than the Grand Prince of Moscow, but it's uh, it's kind of a, both a bigger and smaller difference than it seems. So he doesn't necessarily entitle him to more territory. It's basically he's going from being, yes, I am now the next in the line of rulers of our area, 
as crown prince or grand prince of Moscow to, no, I am now a divine monarch. God has put me in this position. And gotcha. Yeah. So he's basically, he's now elevated from the boss to divine monarch. Right. And so it's kind of a big deal. Of course, the boyards are now both nervous and grumbling about all this and already starting to figure out ways to undermine it from underneath. Early on, though, nothing too crazy. And actually, very unlike uh, Joffrey from Game of Thrones, he kind of sets about modernizing the country kind of right off the bat. And we, we get, okay, we're going to have a standing army. We're going to implement a parliament. We're going to bring in the printing press. Because again, this is now the 16th century. So that's about 100 years old. Right. And then one little story I thought was kind of funny, just as far as how technology transitions throughout the centuries. And you don't think about this kind of thing. So when Moscow brings in the printing press in the 16th century, well, all the scribes and like the unions of scribes were like, undermining them gangster style and like you would you try to like burn down the printing presses and all like all the printers have to like fl- flee moscow and and it's just kind of that's funny f- funny to think about back then how yeah just anyway just how things progress and yet also still kind of always stayed the same <laughs> right a big one is in 1552 they uh, he leads a campaign against kazan one of those kind of old former mongol khanates to the south of again i'm calling it russia Right, that they've just kind of had issues with over the over the decades, and you know they used to lead raids into Moscow and stuff when Ivan was little and all that. And and uh, not only do they win, they like destroy them. So the uh, Kazan had you know been around for 114 years, but after Ivan's crew gets done with them, they cease to exist. It's no longer a thing. And it's after this victory or kind of other victories like this that that's when Saint Basil's Cathedral is built. That is the famous iconic cathedral you see in moscow and every kind of just if you think of close your eyes and think of moscow and that kind of like crazy right. colorful looking it's the yeah. thing that you see in your yeah head. yeah that's what you're seeing <laughs> in your head the other thing that i thought was kind of crazy and like so insulting on a religious level is uh he also ordered the creation of the it's called the cross over crescent so if you see this kind of orthodox cross where that you know they kind of have their kind of slanted little uh crossbar thing sometimes on those orthodox ones but then the base of it is the crescent moon. And the idea is that it's Christianity like defeating Islam. Oh. And and so right. and you still I've seen those crosses before and it never occurred to me that like, no, that's why the moon is like that. It's like basically Oh, that's we funny. defeated I, Muslim uh, Islam. Yeah. I, I never made that connection either. It, and it's cause it like uh the crescent in Islam is basically like the cross. Like right, right. you see it on like ambulances. Yep. But I never made that connection with the, yeah, the cross over crescent, be- the crescent being from Islam. I thought that was just like, just the crescent being used for some other symbol, some other Christian iconography. Nope. But- very, very deliberate. Very deliberate. Yep. <laughs> Yikes. The following year, Ivan actually almost died, which again, not super worth mentioning other than like, you no, know, it was that close to death that like he's even trying to get the boyars to swear their allegiance to his like infant son. And... This is actually in the movie Ivan the Terrible by Eisenstein that we watched for the thing here. And they basically just stared him blankly and refused to. It's like, you're dead, dude. We don't care about your son. Like, it just kind of like. Yeah. Because they just assume he's going to end up dead. But he does not. And uh, another thing that just kind of starts making him paranoid. So that's what we're going to start to see going forward here. There does seem to be this little bit of this psychiatric break that kind of happens throughout his life. Where he's just always paranoid about losing power and what the boyers are doing behind his back and rightfully so because everything he saw growing up and then his mom gets poisoned and then his wife gets is likely poisoned 
Anastasia Romanov, which, so Ivan's line, spoiler alert, is going to die out rather quickly after him, but his wife, his first wife's family ends up ruling Russia all the way through the beginning of the 20th century, like, the Romanovs. Yeah. I was going to say, for, for hundreds of years. Yeah. Right. But yeah. So basically, Ivan is the first czar, his son is the second czar, then there's the, <laughs> oh, you gotta love Russia, the time of troubles. <laughs> Right. Which ends with the Romanovs uh, ruling as czars for the next, you know, three, four hundred years until the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, And that's all that's all his first wife's family. Uh, You brought up paranoia. And it's interesting that like a lot of the figures that we cover both in this tournament and just in history in general, (laughs) paranoia is usually not a if your leader's paranoid, it's usually not a good thing (laughs) for like the rest of the subjects in the kingdom. But also that paranoia is very rarely completely unfounded. <laughs> oh, right, right. His mom was poisoned. His wife probably was poisoned. Like others, his wife right. might have been poisoned. And like they were out to get it. It's like, you're not you're not crazy yeah. if they are out to get you, I guess. <laughs> right. I just think that that's funny that like, we're like, oh, yeah, that's paranoia. Oh, they're doing all this stuff because of paranoia. And it's so bad for all the rest of the people in the kingdom. But also like they I have a reason to be paranoid because, yeah, people are definitely trying to kill them and overthrow them, like, at all Although times. we'll we'll get to a massacre here coming up where uh, it was not founded. It was just based on rumors. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. right. But, it, you know, that's... <laughs> so, kind of a bizarre move here in, uh, in 1564. So, he's been in charge for uh, a while now. But this is just kind of... It's similar to... It makes me think of, like, with uh, when you talked about uh, Isabella of France, where she kind of did this move where she kind of, like secures everything over to France safely, and then basically now she has all the chess pieces. So uh, Ivan gets something kind of similar here where he abdicates his throne, basically saying, oh, these boyars are so corrupt. I I just can't. And he's like, I got to go. I abdicate. And now the boyars are technically left in charge, but they actually have no power, and they're fighting each other, and the citizens are just like, this sucks! And they basically have to beg Ivan to come back. Right. Which is crazy, because it's like... It's such a calculated move. Imagine if tomorrow, like, Joe Biden was like, ah, oh, you know what? I just, I really can't handle this president thing. Congress, you got it from here. And then Congress is, like, just losing their minds and freaking out, and all the people are like, Joe Biden, please come back and be president. He's like, all right, I guess I'll right. come back. Only if you make, give me absolute power, because that's what right, Ivan did. But, right, exactly. <laughs> but, right, only if you make me president for life, basically. Right, right. So, uh, so yes, Ivan does that, uses it just as a calculated move to come back with more power, and can then basically, you know, just seize estates from anybody who is not loyal to him, and just any... Yeah, so he's... Becoming more and more the tyrant. And that then leads into him establishing something called, and I can't pronounce this for, uh, correctly, but the Oprichnik? Oprichnik? Oh, oh, is it Oprichnik? Hang on. It might be a hard C. Oprichnik? Oprichniki. Well, so that's the guards. You drop the I and it's the law. So that's where I got confused too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oprichniki. Op- so Oprichnik. Oprichnik. In uh anyway, basically it's just the official state policy of if you're not loyal to me, I'm coming after you. <laughs> and then yes, the branch of that is the Oprichniki, which is basically the OG state police KGB kind of thing in Russia, right. established by Ivan the Terrible, who unlike yeah. boyars and nobles, where obviously if you come from a good family, you get a good position. Well, no, not with this Oprichniki. They are basically lower people who are now loyal only to Ivan. 
and it was just like even intentionally scary where it's like dressed in all black riding black horses and just like they're they were right it's it's the gestapo yes it's absolutely the gestapo, it's hitler's gestapo right only under ivan the right Terrible. the yeah. 16th century russian version of it and and uh so then that leads to uh the massacre at novgorod in 1570 so that's what i was talking about where there was just rumors that maybe they might defect over to like Poland and Lithuania and and leave kind of the Moscow Russia stuff. So just on the rumors, he sends the Oprichniki to just slaughter the town, like just right. absolute slaughter. Men, women, and children. People just and this is the stuff that is documented. So even if I'm saying it's like, right. oh, he may or may not have hurt cats as a kid. It's like, no, he did order the slaughter and massacre right. of Novgorod, and it was a fairly fairly significant city at the time too right? right like it wasn't this wasn't some just like tiny little village in the middle of nowhere like you know a few dozen people like this was a, a no kidding city right this yeah yeah this this is basically because it's kind of on the road now between um uh, st petersburg and, and moscow but of course st petersburg didn't exist at the time so you can almost argue if Novgorod never gets destroyed it might have just kind of grown toward where st petersburg is and kind of become that city and, you know, St. Right. it would have almost obfuscated the need of St. Petersburg even being established. But it, it never recovers to the point that, yes, there is a town still called Novgorod. It's got about 200,000 people today, and it's kind of a UNESCO World Heritage Site right on the highway between Moscow and St. Petersburg. But if it had not been for this incident, it might have been, you know, St. Petersburg or something as big with millions of people today. Right. And it just it was just never recovered from the Oprichniki attack orchestrated by Ivan the Terrible. He actually does uh, disband the Oprichniki soon after, though, because they kind of failed in the actual combat. So they were good at thugs against men, women, and children, but actually, like helping on a military standpoint, they really weren't equipped to do that. So when uh, forces from Crimea actually come up and end up burning Moscow, and Ivan has to kind of flee, and it's Huge, huge fire in the early 1570s in Moscow. Basically just devastates the city. And he, he disbands them. But they were able to defeat the uh, Crimeans and kind of push them back. He does the abdicating thing again. And it, this isn't really worth super mentioning other than I thought it was just another perfect Ivan move. In that he sets up a puppet ruler. Like, I'm abdicating and this guy's now in charge. But really, I'm ruling this through this guy still. <laughs> Oh, so you mean like exactly what Putin did? Oh, when yes. He was yes, the president yes. and then was like, oh, I'm just going to step down. I'm just going to be the prime minister now. No big deal. There's a new president. And it's like his like bud who is definitely just doing everything that Putin says. Right. And then just the, the baller move is that like this puppet ruler starts confiscating a bunch of church land. And then Ivan can be like, ha, how dare he? Oh, my gosh. OK, sorry. I'm back, everybody. I am back in charge. Right. I will give back a lot of that church land. But definitely not. Right. But definitely not all, because I'm keeping most of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I'm terrible. <laughs> so, and just kind of in general. So, it's just a lot of these kinds of things. So, the biggest thing he does do is puts Russia on the world stage. They go from kind of just this place that had been around for a while that's not really on the world radar to making them a major player, and that is what Ivan the Terrible does. He goes from just oh we're we're making sure we defend the borders of the Grand Duchy of Moscow and we're hanging in there to, no, we're Russia, this border's firm, we're expanding this territory, we're expanding south, we're expanding in all directions, we're growing what Russia is and don't mess with Russia. Like that happens yeah. because of Ivan the Terrible. Right. And that has lasted yeah. t- until today. Right. 
So just kind of my, my kind of wind down notes here then kind of deal more with, uh, so he was married somewhere between six and eight times. Again, this is where the sources are kind of screwy. Some people are like, yes, he's married eight times. And this happened to some of these wives. And another source is like, yeah, those wives might not even have existed. So hmm. there's, you know, there's stories of him, you know, basically killing a wife, you know, immediately if she finds out she's not a virgin or if she had an affair. I've, I had heard that one. Yeah. Is that that one's not real? Um, that one might have been, but then there's another one about a wife having an affair, and that wife might not even have existed or might not have actually been mm-hmm. one of his wives. So some of this is a little sketchy. And even the story of him killing his son, there's a few that don't necessarily believe that, but I think that's more of like Ivan supporters that don't want to believe that their historic hero was bad. Oh, uh, right, yeah. So the story there is that he was kind of in a bad mood because, again, he was kind of a paranoid psychopath. And his pregnant daughter-in-law displeased him by what she was wearing or something like that. So he kind of beats her so bad she, like, miscarried. And then Ivan's son and heir, also named Ivan, was just like, Dad, dude, what are you doing? So they end up in a fight. And Ivan just, like, whacks him over the head with a staff, like, breaking his skull. And his son and heir dies a few days later. And what's crazy about that is not just the incident in itself, but, yeah, his only now remaining son is kind of a doofus who doesn't last and it leads to the time of troubles. Whereas if he had had not killed his son, there might have been a much cleaner succession in all of Russian history. It's not just about, oh, he killed his son and heir. No, that's like kind of like how the Black Prince dying before Edward III caused the War of the Roses. That's kind of what you have here. In a fit of rage, he altered all of Russian history. Only the Black Prince wasn't murdered by Edward III. Well, right. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's as if the Black Prince had murdered, <laughs> sorry, if Edward III had murdered the Black Prince. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then instead of having four other sons, had one kind of like possibly mentally challenged son. <laughs> right. Jeez. And uh, little things I think are interesting where he did have a long correspondence with Queen Elizabeth of England because they are contemporaries and... There's some people that suggest he might have been trying to hint that she could be one of his wives. But again, I couldn't find like a lot of sources really saying that is for sure the case. And he did seem to like really be keen on talking about like military alliances with England, whereas she was more focused on like the commerce side of things and setting up trade relations. But they they did have a a fairly uh, good back and forth. And like he was even securing the idea that (laughs) if things go south for me here in Russia, because I'm kind of terrible. (laughs) <laughs> Can I come hang out in England? Basically, I'll uh, I'll just uh, escape to England if I get kicked out of Russia. Oh, right. And she she agreed. Oh, really? What? Why did that not materialize? He stayed in Russia. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because uh, he he basically never got booted. It, he was too strong to ever actually get to where the boyars could uh, right. mount a, a big enough. He was uh, concerned about it, but it never got to that point. So he also seemed to be. It's kind of surprising. He does seem to have been a very devout Orthodox Christian. It was all kind of all about promoting the church. Now, at the same time, that was likely self-serving because the whole idea was, if I am now this divine monarch, well, the church says that I'm God's emissary on earth, so the church has got to be right right and important to all my subjects because that heightens my power. And that's hardly unique. Well, to that's him. true. Like, that's it's the true. same thing with like every monarch in Europe and the Catholic Church. Like it's the same thing. Okay, that's fair. Although, so I do have I, I got a book here I bought several years ago called "The Most Evil Men and Women in History," and I did want to read this. This is a, supposedly a, it says it's a quote from Ivan the Terrible in a letter he wrote to uh, some other uh, Russian prince here. But it, yeah, it says the monarch can exercise his will over the slaves whom God has given him. 
If you do not obey the sovereign when he commits an injustice, not only do you become guilty of felony, but you damn your soul, for God himself orders you to obey your prince blindly. And that was a quote uh, from Mitch McConnell. <laughs> that was last year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. I, that's, uh, that's the new edition. You are correct. <laughs> so, and then the other one, and this was hard to verify, and... I found other sources referring to it, but every source was basically just referring back to Wikipedia, and all the Wikipedia sources were in Russian, so I couldn't confirm this. But apparently he was also a fairly competent poet and composer, and I couldn't actually find the songs, because if you actually try to search for songs by Ivan the Terrible, you just didn't find a lot of songs from the movie, and I just couldn't parse through what was what, but... It's very possible there are songs out there we could try to find that were composed by Ivan the Terrible in the midst of all the other stuff he had going on, which I thought was kind of crazy. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. And I like so if I could find it, I'd play it in this episode, but I, I couldn't find anything other than this music like from the movies about him. So yeah, just a uh, fascinating figure. Uh, as far as uh, religious tolerance in general, last quick note, he actually, despite the cross we mentioned that he created, you know, commemorating his defeat over the Kazan and other Islamic uh, areas, he was actually kind of okay with muslims like as far as like them having their faith but apparently huge anti-semite like ivan the terrible hated the jews the one anecdote here is that when they uh, captured a, a city in what is now belarus all the jews were either converted and if you didn't convert you were just drowned like all of them in an entire city and it just Jeez. was not okay with them you know existing yeah so when he was about 53 he died of a stroke while playing chess which you know, I mean, that's kind of kind of a kind of a pretty cool way to go out, I guess. <laughs> Physically, he was kind of this intimidating guy, though, too. You know, kind of a good athletic build when he was young. About said about 5'10", 190 when he was in his youth, and then that was probably with like his head shaved bald. It's pretty big for the time, probably. Right, ex- exactly. Yeah, 5'10", 190 back in the 16th century, and with his head shaved and a long, dark red beard, and then he was actually even kind of ugly. They say, like someone said, quote, an unpleasant face with a long and crooked nose. So just kind of a menacing, intimidating guy. And yeah, he just kind of set the tone for Russia for the next well, I say three and a half centuries, but I say all, all the way to the present time, because even as you kind of said, like Vladimir Putin and a lot of the ways he's running Russia today is kind of channeling Ivan the Terrible. It's also maybe part of why, I mean, he's not universally popular in Russia, but I think this kind of way of ruling and way of controlling through this kind of nationalistic authoritarianism, they're kind of okay with. Again, not the whole population by any means, but it's way more popular in Russia than, well, than we thought it would be over here. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so yes, a lot in Russia today do kind of view him favorably, uh, despite a lot of the things we talked about. And yeah, just kind of a kind of a monster, but also super important in the history of Russia. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's Ivan the Terrible. You know, that's, that's something that you know, I guess kind of spoiler alert for the rest of the episode, we're going to see with Napoleon. It's something that you see with, you know, like Vlad the Impaler and Romanians is the same way. Right, right. Like these... Genghis Khan, how Iran thinks he's a monster, but then the Mongols are like, woo, Genghis Khan! Right, exactly. And so it's like, you know, yeah, it really does depend on kind of which side are. Just like, you know, as Americans, there are like founding fathers that we think are awesome and great, but Native Americans, not so much. Right, right, yep, yep. 
So yeah, it's uh, it's complicated. I think that you know we always talk and talk about this. There's there are all these shades of gray. Yeah. I mean, I was probably a little less gray, but like in general, <laughs> <laughs> probably dark, a little bit darker, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, more of a charcoal. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's uh, what do you what's uh, let's learn about Napoleon. All right, so Napoleon Bonaparte was born in 1769 on August 15th to a family of minor nobles um, in Corsica, and uh, his early you know childhood was pretty normal. His father was a revolutionary against the French at one point, but then kind of gave that up after him and his revolutionary buddies got defeated and. That was actually something that Napoleon never really forgave his father for. Oh, huh. Even though he was like, you know, big time French later on in his life, he always thought that his dad was kind of a coward for not continuing that revolution. Because they were kind of a, it was like, an, Corsica was like independent or whatever, right? And like, just like became part of France as Napoleon was born. And so his father was kind of like, well, screw them. I want to be independent. Was it that kind of thing? Right. Yeah. yeah, there was, yeah, there was like a small group of Corsicans that wanted, yeah, wanted Corsican independence. And they were fighting against the French. Yeah. But then they were, you know, eventually defeated pretty easily. But yeah, so because his dad, you know, ended up not continuing the revolution, he kind of got into local politics and got like a, a little bit of political influence and power, but not not really anything crazy, but enough that Napoleon was able to attend the Royal Military College. In France itself, not Corsica, right? Right, yeah. In in France. When he got there, he was kind of a loner because he could hardly speak French, and the French that he did speak, he spoke with the Corsican accent. Um, and was made fun of for speaking French with a Corsican accent. And he was also small as a child, contrary to like everything you've heard about Napoleon. And, you know, even like, oh, there's, you know, like the Napoleon complex is like a short guy who is really aggressive to make up for it. He actually grew up to be a normal size. By the time he was full grown, he was 5'7", which was like average height for the time. Right. So short as a kid, normal height as an adult. Yeah. Right, little as a kid, but grew up to be normal-sized. At the age of 16, he became a lieutenant in the French military, and he really liked being in the military. Um, He started out in the artillery, but he was kind of bored with it after a little while, and that was mostly due because his rise through the ranks was slow, because at the time, France was an aristocracy, and if you wanted to work your way up in the military, to a high rank, especially if you wanted to do it quickly, you had to have money and or titles. And he didn't have either one. And so he was just kind of, you know, uh, disillusioned, stagnant in his career after a few years. But lucky for him, the French Revolution happened (laughs) in 1789. And while he wasn't a revolutionary himself, he liked the idea of the military being more meritocratic and the whole money and titles thing not really applying as much. In 1793, he fought in a battle called the Siege of Toulon, which I'm sure that that's a very anglicized pronunciation of that, that town name. But uh, basically, it was a port town that the British were trying to gain a foothold in. And the way that they were doing that was defending the town with artillery from their ships. And the French wanted to take back this town, and because a lot of the officers from the aristocracy had left France at this point because of the revolution, Napoleon saw this as his chance 
to show, hey, this is something where if I succeed, if I pull this off, you know, my status, I, I can yeah, prove my yeah, worth yeah. and and maybe move up through the ranks. So he goes to Toulon and he defeats the British there. And when he's there, he's wounded in battle. And this is where he starts to develop his reputation as a commander that literally leads from the front. Um, he's very charismatic. He is very good at inspiring his men and raising morale. And he gained the loyalty of everyone under his command. In 1795, he is in Paris, still in the military at this point, And he is tasked with dealing with a royalist mob in Paris. And b- between this and the Siege of Toulon, this is really where he puts himself on the fast track to getting to the top of the military. So he's, uh, to deal with this royalist mob, he's uh, tasked with defending the Tuileries Palace, and he does it with the ingenious use of grape shot in his artillery, which basically turns all of his cannon into, like, giant shotguns. Right. And he waits for the mob to get really close, like, until he can see the whites of their eyes, and he unleashes this hail of grape shot onto the, onto the mob, kills 1,400 of them, P- Parisians, in Paris basically crowd control wow and he he was stoked he loved it <laughs> he actually wrote he wrote a letter to his brother and in his referring to his fighting at the tuileries he said the enemy attacked us we killed a great many of them now all is quiet i could not be happier so my dude napoleon just loved killing because of this victory in paris and dealing with the mob Everyone in charge loves him now. He's got glory. He's got money. He's got fame. And they make him the commander of the interior. And they make him commander of the army of Italy. And when he goes to Italy at first, the guys who are in charge at the time, like the generals under his commander, like this guy is a nobody. He did like one cool thing in Paris. And all of a sudden he's yeah, just like a young upstart. He thinks he's thing. a big yeah. shot. But he gets there and immediately proves him wrong. Like right. he... Again, brings up the morale of all the troops. He's inspiring. He leads from the front. Makes the right calls. He's su- yeah. yeah, makes all the right calls. Super charismatic. And he is massively successful in campaigns across Europe. He goes to and fights in Egypt. He is eventually defeated by the British in Egypt in 1799 and uh, has to go with his army back to Paris. But again, this is another, like, perfect time perfect place for napoleon because he gets back to paris with his army and it's like right at the perfect time to overthrow uh what was called the directory which was basically like the government of france at the time right after the um, the french revolution yeah. he installs himself as one of three consuls so basically the the three the the highest level the very top of the government is three people um, they're all consuls, but he very quickly takes all the power away from the other two and makes himself basically the the ruler of the entire country. Um, he's not the emperor yet, but he's basically the ruler. And everyone's pretty much fine with it because... he's so popular. It's, it's Julius Caesar exactly. 2.0. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it's like, yeah, going from consul to emperor, like, it's almost exactly the same thing. Yeah, super popular, popular with the military, popular with the public. He is ruling France, um, and he also at this time is making nice with the Catholic Church. Oh, because the Reign of Terror and all of them are kind of like anti-church, right? Uh, oh, right, like the Directory. Oh, and the Directory too. Yeah, well, yeah. So the the French government had had been kind of 
right, they kind of clashed with the Catholic Church a little bit, but Napoleon comes in and he says, you know, oh, I'm going to reinstate letting the state pay for priests and bishops and stuff as long as the church says that, like, France is cool and good. And so that's obviously the church is cool with that. And the Catholic Church and Napoleon are on good terms until Napoleon starts to annex land that belongs to the church. And then they're not happy anymore, and he actually ends up getting excommunicated oh. <laughs> um, later on. But uh, so after this, um, after he becomes the consul, uh, the first consul, he starts fighting these military conflicts with Austria and with England. In 1803, he sells the Louisiana Purchase to the United States, which the Louisiana Territory is basically Louisiana up the Mississippi River and then west to like the Rockies basically is the um is how it is geographically. So like I, I'm not in the in the Louisiana Purchase right now, but Rich, you are. You're sitting like right in the middle of the whole thing. <laughs> um and then in eighteen oh four he crowns himself emperor. Um so he's the first emperor of France uh, in December of eighteen oh four. Eighteen oh four is also the year that he establishes the Napoleonic Code, um, which is interesting because it's like the first time that that laws are standardized across the entire country of France. Um, up until that point, it had been a lot of like provincial rules and laws based on where you go. They're different. Um, but this is like one set of laws for the whole country. It modernized France. It uh, established more schools for what today we would call STEM subjects. So, you know, technology, science, and also teaching. So a lot of schools to help France evolve technologically and also their education system. He basically invented the concept of going to high school. That didn't really exist before Napoleon instituted it in France. And by the way, a lot of these policies were adopted by other countries all over the world. Right. So they, you know, they look and they see how successful France is with their Napoleonic code and they adopted a lot of it. So yeah, education is big and technology is also huge. <laughs> On the flip side of that though, the Napoleonic Code really cut down on the rights of women in France. It established a very strict police state with the use of, like, spies, basically, kind of like a 19th century version of the Patriot Act mm. um, to make sure that everyone was staying in line and obeying the law and no one was plotting against Napoleon. And uh, I, I think it's, you know, the kind of the dichotomy between the modernization and the, and the progressiveness with the technology versus the personal rights of a lot of French citizens being cut back. John Green in his video says that history doesn't necessarily mean, it's not necessarily always a march towards more rights for more people. And that's, I don't know, something that uh, maybe we don't necessarily consciously think about all the time. But yeah, just because, you know, you're not like a peasant or under a serfdom doesn't mean that history's default setting is to make everyone's life better. Right. So after Napoleon crowns himself emperor, he starts fighting all these military campaigns um, and basically brings all of Europe under French control. He basically conquers the entire continent of Europe. He ends the Holy Roman Empire in 1806, defeats the Holy Roman Empire in, in Austria. It goes back a thousand years to Charlemagne. Yep. Yeah. And, the, and, and Napoleon comes along and now it's France. And he applied his reforms to conquered territories. So the Napoleonic Code applies there. 
just like the the schools and stuff that he set up in France, he does that in the territories that he conquers, and he was instrumental in disseminating the metric system to the rest of Europe. Oh, so standardizing huh. units of measurement for the whole continent. Probably part of why we're not on board because different part of the world. Well, that and uh, he didn't. It's the same reason that, like, if you go to England, they they use like certain you know standard measurements Still, versus okay because he he never conquer britain right huh i mean they they do use a lot of it but it's also why like the um until recently the kilogram like the weight that was called the kilogram was in paris it was like a chunk of metal that was in paris oh right the actual official standard yeah, yeah 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 that's where the metric system was kind of established but uh so he spread these reforms and he is quote-unquote improving the lives of the people in these places however this also leads to and inspires an increased sense of nationalism in a lot of these places because they don't want to think of themselves as French. Oh, right. Now they think of themselves as, oh, I'm I'm actually Austrian or, oh, I'm, I'm actually German. More so than they thought before. Before they just thought, like, I'm a farmer. And now right. they have a sense of unity to their own place that because another guy's kind of coming and saying, like, no, you're this. I'm like, wait, no, we're not. Right, yeah. And uh, that kind of, um, and this is... Uh, you know, the 18, 1810s, the 18 teens. And uh, within a hundred years, you have World War One because of oh, interesting. basically festering nationalism that is kind of the, the spark is ignited way back when Napoleon has control over the entire continent. Well, and how the system, system of alliances is largely set up throughout the rest of the 19th century to prevent a Napoleon from happening again is uh, tied to all that right. too. Yeah. 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 Okay, so after he conquers basically all of Europe, uh, <laughs> he next sets his sights on Russia. He says, I've conquered Europe. I want to bring Russia into the fold. And so he invades Russia in 1812. Even though Ted told him not to. Egg, I know. I know. But, you know, he obviously didn't listen. Uh, <laughs> so he takes between six and 700,000 French troops from france marches them into russia and the russians don't want to fight they just say oh um we're just gonna start marching backwards oh and by the way we're gonna burn every town and field and crop and grain store anything that your army could possibly use to feed or clothe itself between where you are and where we're going we're setting it on fire um so they do this scorched earth thing they do end up fighting a battle at a town I don't remember the name of, but it's just south of Moscow. And it's pretty costly, actually, for both sides. But it's more costly for the French because they can't afford... They're so far away from France, and everything that they've walked past has been burned. So they don't. They have no way to get reinforcements and no way to get resupplies. They do end up making it to Moscow, which was kind of their goal. But Moscow was, like, completely torched. And by so the Russians, up, like right by the Russians. I love this. It's like, sorry, in War and Peace. No, no. no. So I, I kind of learned this little piece from War and Peace, and I just thought mm -hmm. it was the most baller move ever. Where Russia's just like, oh, you you, you conquered Moscow, boom, what Moscow? Right. It's just like you own the rubble. Yeah. We don't care. Bye. 
And then I just yeah. like, wow, wow, don't mess right. with Russia. It's like, <laughs> exactly. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's like the military equivalent of like cutting off your nose to spite yes! your face. Only it, only it works. Yeah. <laughs> because Napoleon gets there and he's like, oh, well, uh, I'm just going to sit, I'm just going to hang out and uh, wait for your surrender. I have conquered Moscow. And they're like, okay. And it's just kind of like a staring match. Yeah, crickets. Yeah. And then, and then eventually Napoleon's like, Ugh, yeah, I can't really stay here. We need food. We need food. <laughs> right. And and also, like, half of my army is defecting and, like, it's cold and disease is spreading. I have no choice. I have to go back to France. So he ends up marching back. And in the, the winter. He, yep, in the winter. And by the time he gets back to Poland, he has 40,000 troops. From, well, and he started with between six and 700,000. Yes. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the Russians were even, like, nipping at their heels as they were retreating. So, like, the Russians go into hiding. Yes. And then start sniping them off as they're retreating. Yes. Like, the Russians are ruthless. Right. Do not invade Russia. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, imagine you you walk all the way from France to Moscow, you know, survive <laughs> battles. You get to Moscow. It's burned out. You're starving. You're marching back in the cold. And the Russians are still killing you. And you're like, come on, man. I'm just trying to, like, leave your country Never never get involved in a land war in Asia. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he gets back and he's severely weakened. His mil- his army is super weakened. And this is when the rest of Europe bas- basically says, all right, guys, now's our chance to, to reign in Napoleon. Kick him while he's down, yeah. And they defeat him in battle at Leipzig in 1813. And <laughs> the battle was actually... He didn't need to fight it. Like, they offered him terms that would have actually allowed him to still be the ruler of France. They just wanted some other concessions made. And he said, no, I don't think so. I'd, I'd literally rather fight you and maybe die. And wow. uh, that's what he did. So he gets well, he defeated die, at yeah. Leipzig. <laughs> right, you're right. He didn't, he didn't die. But he was defeated um, in 1813, forced to abdicate. And he is sent into exile on the island of Elba in 1814. And then he escapes in 1815. He lands in France and marches on Paris with his little group of soldiers that he had on Elba. Yeah, basically, Paris at this time is like, oh, we got to stop this. We're going to send a regiment and uh, you capture him or you kill him, but you don't let him get to Paris. You don't let him do anything. And they get there. With their strict orders, and Napoleon basically stops his group of guys, and he walks out and he says, "All right, guys, I'm right here. If any of you guys actually wants to kill me or capture me, go ahead." And they join him. They join forces. They all say, "Yeah, you know what? Actually, long live the emperor. Let's go to Paris." <laughs> and that happens along the way, right? It like keeps happening, right? Yeah. So, right as he's marching then to Paris more groups of French forces hear what's going on and then they join with them. So then he comes back to Paris and he's back in power. Which goes to how you talked about how popular he was with, you know, the troops and the morale and stuff. It's like, if, if anything proves it, it's this. I mean, you can't do this oh, unless yeah. you're insanely popular with your soldiers. Even after right. the Russian debacle. That's what I was always kind of surprised me. Yeah, even after the Russian debacle that and the sitting, I think it's, is it Louis the 18th at this time? Yeah, which, which, I lose track because you also, you had, the 16th was the one that was executed, but then you also had like his son and his brother became 17 and 18. I think that's right. 
Yeah, I don't know. One of the Louis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, basically the sitting ruler of France is ordering these guys like, you are to take Napoleon into custody or kill him. And they're like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> He's in charge. So he comes back, he takes back power, uh, marches on Paris, and his first things that he does once he gets power back is he starts fighting another war. The allies rally against him again, and uh, he is defeated a second time by the Duke of Wellington at Waterloo, and that's kind of the last nail in his coffin. Um, And then he died on the 5th of May in 1821, and one of the, I don't think it's his actual last words, but one of the last things that he is recorded as saying is he whispered to one of the guards um, that was near him when he was in his final days, and he said, to die is nothing, but to live defeated and without glory is to die every day. Oh, wow. Which... That is pretty cool. It's kind of a cool quote. It it uh, goes to show kind of his frame of mind that he was in when he was in his final days, but, like, he died, you know, defeated and without glory, maybe, but... History remembers him as this like massively popular, massively successful, super influential, badass of a military leader and emperor who like, yeah, did some, you know, had some Napoleonic code stuff that was not so awesome. But he changed France like to this day and, you know, by extension, the rest of the world. And I know we've talked before about, oh, was Napoleon just in the right place at the right time or would he have been? that influential no matter what and i think i think it's both i think that because of the political situation in france i think someone was bound to to take power maybe not necessarily in the exact same way right i don't they they wouldn't have had his success i don't think Right. right there was a power vacuum but like napoleon born at any time he's so ambitious and driven and charismatic like he was destined for greatness right and he did it even at a time when when he was born, basically, your only options for getting any kind of power were to be born into a family that had enough money and power that they could pass it on to you. And he basically, at every turn, was like, I'm going to get power and influence for myself, and was able to do it just through sheer drive and determination and charisma. Yeah, I think in a world where there was no French Revolution preceding his rise, I could see a world where. Louis the Sixteenth, strapped for cash, has this young badass general who starts taking over lands for him to give more money, get money back to the French or something. Like Napoleon was still had a role, yeah. even I think in that world, as, as basically being like the driving force behind a stronger France uh, at the same time period, even if there was no French Revolution. Right. The few notes I have, just because uh, I'm, you know, we're, we're kind of sharing the research here, but I'm a little more familiar with uh, Napoleon. Just kind of, I mean, not the new, just like. Then these other people we've talked about just from all my years of reading the other stuff. But so my, I had always gotten the vibe that after Waterloo, because I thought it was so weird, like you said, after, you know, Leipzig, they all just kind of rejoin him when he comes back from exile without big issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after Waterloo, it seemed like the public was now just done with him. It was just like, yeah, okay. It was great, but you know, hey, it's not you, it's us. Uh, we, we're 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 done. Bye. Yeah, he he also made like 
a number of like tactical blunders at Waterloo, and I think maybe his the the mystique of this great general was now gone after Russia. Right, Russia that, could be a one off, but then Leipzig and then Waterloo. It's right. like okay, you're not as good as we thought you were. That plus, I think maybe he sees like you know maybe I just don't have it anymore. Maybe mm. I've lost my edge. Maybe I'm kind of washed up. He was you know, okay. Maybe, he didn't keep fighting anymore either. Yeah, okay. Right. It's it's kind of like a you know equate it to like a Tom Brady if he didn't win the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> Well, right. Or yeah, any kind of like aging athlete who, you know, stays in their sport like way past their prime and just kind of gets worse and worse. Hmm. I I think maybe Waterloo, that's kind of the same thing for Napoleon is he realizes, oh, you know what? I'm just I'm not as as sharp as I was. I'm making these mistakes. And maybe it is time for me to just kind of hang it up. I'd be curious. This isn't really the scope of this podcast, but I'd be curious to hear. Uh, actual like military tacticians break down the stuff it's like what was he doing early on that worked so well and then what did he not do or did people start to adapt to his methods like does well does the duke of wellington be like well i know his mo now and here's how we're gonna counter it of course then uh again from war and peace Tolstoy talked about i think that it had rained a lot the night before the battle of waterloo and like basically yeah. napoleon's plan for artillery you basically couldn't put the artillery on the field and of course you mentioned he's an mm-hmm. artillery guy because it had rained well, then it's like right. it hadn't rained. Do they win the battle? And like all those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, he was, he was waiting for the ground to dry, but then he ended up waiting too long. Um, there was a thing where at the beginning, because it was the Duke of Wellington and then there were uh, the Prussians. Mm. And the Prussians had actually left like the day before the battle. Like they had been kind of defeated and chased off by the French. And basically Napoleon sent like a portion of his army to pursue them and make sure that they didn't come back and rejoin and the pursuing French forces didn't realize that they were only pursuing the rear like the rear portion of the Prussian army and the rest of the army did come back and rejoin the Duke of Wellington so that was a big mistake on the part of the French um Mm. there was the use of certain like a type of square formation by the Duke of Wellington's infantry that made it impervious to cavalry. And it basically led to the slaughter of like a huge part of Napoleon's cavalry. Like the so Duke of Wellington in his own right was uh, actually a pretty good rival. It's basically, yeah, yeah it's yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah, it's kind of a combination of the Duke of Wellington being, you know, really good in his own militarily right. Yeah. Savvy and a, and a innovative tactician. And also Napoleon not being at the top of his game and making a bunch of mistakes. Huh? The other notes, well, one, I just love because I'm a, you know, obviously a huge Count of Monte Cristo fan. And, and I mentioned this probably back in, you know, maybe the Master and Commander episode, but I always just dug that a lot of the plot in the Count of Monte Cristo is set into motion because while Napoleon is in exile on Elba, the ship that our main character is a sailor on stops there and the captain supposedly like smuggles a message to Napoleon or from Napoleon, you know, try to get, you know, basically doing messages back uh, and forth with France while he's in exile. Right. And then basically the main character gets accused of being a part of that. And that's why Edmund Donahue gets thrown into prison is for being a Bonapartist while he's in exile. And it kind of triggers that whole right. plot. And anyway, I, I've always just kind of dug that little part of it. And the one other interesting thing that I do think is worth mentioning is when he was in Egypt, after kind of taking care of Italy, my understanding is that a lot of the, how popular 
Egypt and Egyptology and everything got in the Western world goes back to Napoleon's expedition. And that's like yes. why we grew up being like, Egypt is so cool. That wasn't a thing right. until Napoleon was there. Because Napoleon, when he went to Egypt, he didn't just take his military. He took scientists, scholars yeah, and writers yeah. and historians and scientists. And they go there and they're studying Egypt. And basically the Egyptians are kind of impressed with Napoleon because he's tells them that he's like a not a believer but like a supporter i guess of islam mm. and so they're all like really kind of cool with him i guess more cool than you would be with your <laughs> run-of-the-mill invading army um <laughs> but but at the same time napoleon steals a bunch of historical artifacts and brings them back to europe and a lot of that stuff is actually in europe to this day including the the, the big i wrote the rosetta stone this is where the rosetta stone was found was while yes. Napoleon was in yeah. France and they, or sorry, yeah. when Napoleon was in Egypt is when they discovered the Rosetta Stone and brought it back. That's, yep. so yeah, that's. And it, another connection to a movie that we did is not about Napoleon at all, but in Gallipoli, when Mel Gibson and his buddy run to the top of the pyramid, they're sitting next to an inscription from French troops that oh, were in Napoleon's right, army. right. I like, you know, that's what we've talked about before. I just love the layers of history uh, they yeah. go into that to you know thousands of year old monuments and then French troops and then Australian New Zealand soldiers soldiers and yeah it's the layers of history are always kind of fascinating there so yeah that's uh that's uh that's Napoleon and so the question now becomes who is more interesting and gets to advance I don't think this is I don't think it's fair because I really I I think I would vote Napoleon and I. I think he's super interesting. I do think that Ivan the Terrible is very interesting, but there's just so much more about Napoleon. But <laughs> I don't think it's fair because you are also like a big Francophile and are also super interested in Napoleon. I feel like this week is kind of... Uh... I- Ivan didn't have a chance. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I will say is because it's... Uh... Yeah, now, despite, I guess, maybe our own biases that we've obviously I kind of you know started... Helping you. Now, now, this is like when we're spelling out the bios, it's not like that's necessarily the case for and against, but uh, I feel like Ivan is fascinating and just kind of that unique, the terrible, but there are a lot of murderous tyrants who were then powerful forces for making their country stronger on the world stage. But right. where Napoleon stands out, because even we talked about, well, Ivan was born, his dad was the previous Grand Prince of Moscow. Yes. For me, the biggest thing about Napoleon is you have the small kid that everyone picked on because he had a Corsican accent. It was undersized. Literally became the emperor of France. Yeah. That just into there one sentence. Oh my gosh. How does he not make the final four? Yeah. It's Napoleon in a slam dunk for me. Like, right. Yeah. He, he has everything. He has the, you know, come from not. He didn't come from nothing, but he didn't come from aristocracy. He right. becomes the emperor. Right. He becomes super successful because of his charisma and his mind and his determination, and not because of, you know, daddy's money or anything. And then, you know, staying power, everyone knows who Napoleon is. Even if you don't know all of the history behind everything that he did, you at least are familiar with the name. And even the stuff that he did, there's stuff that he did that is super influential that people don't even don't even realize or know about like the metric system, the high schools and, and yeah. high school yeah. and nationalism that caused a world war one that then kind of like, you know, indirectly led to world war two, like, and that stuff all goes back to 
the way that Napoleon shaped Europe at the beginning of the 19th century. And yeah, so he advances to the Elite Eight. And so again, we are going to reseed. So he will not go up against the winner of the Cardinal Richelieu and Queen Elizabeth I matchup in the Enlightened Industrialists. He's actually going to get reseeded. And even though we only have three matchups done in this round, if I'm calculating this correctly, he will be facing Empress Matilda in the next round because he is the highest seed from the Enlightened Industrialists, and she is guaranteed to be the lowest seed coming out of the medieval on your ass region. So that does, on our uh, Elite Eight bracket, match them up. And uh, oh, no. that's, a, that's, that's a tough one, because uh, we definitely loved uh, Empress Matilda the last time. So interesting to see how that plays out. Next week, we move to modern times for our first Sweet 16 matchup there, and it will be... Winston Churchill versus Puyi. Yeah.